Welcome to the Few Podcast. Never in the field of human contact was so much owed by so many to so few. So you want to become one of the few. You can't skip steps. You have to put one foot in front of the other. Things take time. I have a dream. dream. Hear inspiring stories from the few and learn about what it takes to turn your dreams into a reality. It's a day for all Australians, isn't it? It's a day that brings us all together. Marvellous. Your hosts, Boo and Sean. Hey, Shorty. Wow, fantastic. Here we are in the studio again. Got a pretty awesome uh, guest to chat to today. Uh, how have you been? It's been a crazy, crazy world. Uh, how's life in uh, COVID been treating you, uh, Sean? Mate, it's not too bad, actually. Uh, it started off as a bit, of a bit of a speed hump, and then things have really accelerated from there. So we've actually uh, done really well. We've actually grown quite well, and, and most of the uh, clients we're working with in business owners are starting to pop out the other side, I think in a really positive way, which is great to see as well. So, It's uh, it's unusual, isn't it? It's, it's been interesting when we look at some of the people that we've spoken to and stayed connected with. Uh, most of them have just seen COVID as a minor speed bump. Uh, some people have taken it hard outside of the community we spoke uh, speak to, but within the, the community we're involved in, we're seeing people uh, thrive right now. Uh, and our guest today, geez, I'll tell you what, it's hard to uh, find a succinct way to uh, introduce him, uh, is, is Wesley Plain McLennan. Uh, Wesley, thanks so much for uh, coming and joining us here today. Great to be here. Now, Wesley, you, you've uh, you've been a busy man. You've lived a very full uh, full life indeed, and uh, you're obviously uh, got a, you don't have an Australian accent like myself and Sean. You hail from uh, the US. You've had the opportunity to mingle with the likes of of Bill Clinton. You've carved yourself a a little bit of a niche in the performance and strategy um, side of things. And I'll tell you what, mate, doing a bit of research on you and and having a look at the accomplishments that you've achieved, including your uh, book, which we'll talk about in a moment. There are a few key themes there and some stuff that I really uh, that really resonated with me and really specifically now when we're looking at these hybrid remote and local teams uh, you talk a little bit about uh, leaders surrendering surrendering control what what sort of limitation is that for leadership in this day and age trying to maintain the level of control over their teams and staff that they used to when they had that physical environment look I think control is one of those things that's an outdated approach to leadership so I think most people kind of think control means leadership and in fact, giving up control is a better way to describe what leadership is all about. Where most people think about feeling, touching, and being engaged face-to-face with their teams and their organizations in this new environment, that's just not possible. So it's almost like you have to give up control and cultivate this uh, environment of trust that allows people to do their job. And your, your role as a leader is just to ask how you can support them. Trust seems to be a recurring theme at the moment uh, with remote teams and also uh, potentially COVID has highlighted some deficiencies inside uh, organizations. What are some of the trends you're seeing with uh, your clients uh, around this really generational uh, disruption? And what are some of the key lessons learned that people can take uh, from this situation right now to, to thrive over the next two, three, four, five years? Like in many ways, you almost have to throw out the old playbook because it simply doesn't work in this environment where people are used to, as I said, being face to face with the teams and the organizations that they work with. It's almost as if you have to say, look, that is the old way. And looking ahead, we're going to have to figure out new ways of working that involves people working remotely. Although people have always worked remotely, but this kind of crystallizes what the the new ways of working will be, um, where teams will be working remotely. In fact, in the way we look at performance, that needs to take a second um, stage in terms of allowing people to manage their own performance and focus on outcomes as opposed to processes. Uh, So it's really a a new day. But to my mind, it's a really incredible opportunity for folks to actually look inside and say, well, what is it about my leadership that I need to change? Engage with the team to find out what about your leadership they like or dislike um, and make those appropriate changes to meet their needs. Because again, leadership, it's not about me, it's about you. And so would you say, Wesley, that um, uh, let's um, say, imagine that tomorrow the the COVID disappeared. Uh, Do you feel things are going to go back to, let's say, normal? Or do you feel that this is now the new normal? Teams are going to choose to have people offsite now as a part of their standard process, not demanding people to come into large, you know, multi-story offices and things like that. What's your take on, on the new landscape? Yeah, look, it is a new normal. And so, you know, everything from 
uh, Twitter and Google and others have actually decided that we're going to let people work from home for the foreseeable future because there actually is, I mean, again, being a new normal, the idea of a team meeting isn't all gathering in the conference room and sharing coffees and donuts. It's actually being in your normal life, which is typically at home, um, but allowing that personality of your home and yourself to be authentic and to be who you are, which I think adds a really a wonderful dimension to our work lives blending. So it's no longer about work-life balance, it's life balance. And the idea that you're able to come in and out, given your circumstances, your situation, your domestic duties and responsibilities, um, allows people to see more of yourself. Um, so I think it's just the new way that we're going to have to focus on getting together. Um, you know, it's funny living here in Torquay, where all of a sudden, the, the environment is blown up, where people have now realized because they can work from home, they're going to move to where they want to be. 12 years ago, I moved to Torquay thinking this is where I wanted to be able to work from home. And it's yeah, only the sea now. change is really the sea change has really accelerated. Regional uh, suburbs and, and cities are just are absolutely oh, absolutely. And it's really because we now realize that we don't have to go into don't an office. To. And if I don't have to go into an office, I'm going to live where I love, as opposed to working so I have a short commute to an office where now I don't have to be. And I've got a uh, I live up here in uh, Noosa in Queensland, and. Um, uh, I was speaking to an agent the other day and I said, oh, it's a bit crazy at the moment. She said, yeah, I put a property on uh, for a rental property, for example, uh, at 10 o'clock and she had 22 applications within less than two hours yep. because so many people are going and, and I like the expression, I can't remember who said it, but someone I heard somebody say it is, it's work-life integration. Because mm. balance is something that always sways back as well, but integration is actually making it part of. And it's funny how, imagine 12 months ago, if you're on a Zoom call at work and someone's dog was barking in the background or their kid was scratching at the door. You think it was so unprofessional. <laughs> now it's just like people don't even notice. Yeah. <laughs> well, the like, doors I, open I, in the background. You know? I, know, I teach class on a, on a Monday and a Wednesday night from um, six to nine. And I say to my students, look, I understand, you know, you've got your, your partner who's uh, made your dinner and, and he's putting it in front of you or your kids are, you know, playing tag behind you. That's just the, again, the new normal. So, yeah. Yeah. you know, as long as, you know, they're not bothering you, they're not bothering me. People it just shows you the construct. It. What mm. It's just a construct, what we believe an organization should look like. It's, it's completely... Oh, it was like a company. It's just something that we've made up. It's not actually real. It's just this this ethos. And uh, Sean and Wesley, I know yourselves as one of the few, uh, the embodiment of that. You know, like me, you would have probably not had an office for years. Um, I mean, and when you get an office, you think, oh, I've got a new company. I'll get a team, have an office. You probably drop in there for the first couple of weeks and then that's it. You're never in there again. You're on the phone. And another key uh, point you made, uh, Wesley, and I absolutely love it because I really hear it, is outcome-focused activity. Uh, an effect, a desired outcome and just letting people get on with it. Uh, yeah. and, I, and this is where I see this, this first opportunity forever since business was invented for people just to go, hey, work from home. This is what I need you to achieve in the next week. Do you agree? We collaborate. We agree that we can both achieve this and then just get on get on and do it. This is, this is transformational stuff and it's happening incredibly quickly. Do you think that leaders are, are grasping it or do you think they're struggling? Look, I, I think for many leaders to feel they have purpose or relevance, they get into the minutia of managing process. Um, and instead, what they need to do is take a step back and allow people to do their job, do what they've been hired to do, do their best, and to provide you with the outcomes that are required. Again, um, you know, I, I know of a situation where I was managing or actually mentoring um, a, a former CFO who had been promoted to be a CEO. Now, he was a CFO, and so he had extensive knowledge of the financials. And the person behind him came up and had been promoted into that CFO role. Make a long story short, as much as I coached and mentored him to lead the organization and not be focused on the minutia of the CFO role, which he was quite comfortable with and knew, he couldn't do it. So he continued to get into the detail of the CFO role instead of leading the organization. And a year later, he was let go. Again, the idea of being busy and micromanaging and feeling re you know, relevance because you're involved in the day-to-day -day management is not being a leader. They can do that all on their own. 
You need to be focused on how you can support people, how you can remove obstacles, how you can become a visionary. People look to you to align their purpose with yours, to find a common purpose, as opposed to be focusing on the the ins and outs of the detail of a process. I think one thing that I've observed too, was in, in to can sort of add to what you're saying there is that leadership, um, say within a small business environment, small to medium business environment, I think those um, individuals, the business owners and, and in smaller environments, the managers and, and leaders within those teams, they've got a they're at a um, at a, ma- a massive benefit here to people from the large corporate companies and and you used the word before you know in passing control boo when you said you know a uh, control versus you know letting go of control is actually leadership and control is micromanagement but I believe a lot of these bigger companies they have the framework of an organization looks like this because it is about controlling people to be in that box so do you was he feel, do you feel that that shift is going to be harder for the larger organizations to make, particularly the old school, you know, very kind of structured uh, ones, not so much your Googles and Facebooks. Yeah. Look, I think it will be difficult because many of those large organizations for, for their own benefit of well, a whole bunch of reasons, but the bottom line is they're flattening out. Um, organizations don't find hierarchy is of any benefit other than to have a title um, in terms of how an organization actually functions. It's actually quite, flat and this idea of working remotely has reduced that hierarchy even more because people don't have the ability to wait for a decision from him or her and then him or her to do this now here where I am and I don't have the time or resource to be able to go up the the chain of command in order to get a decision to come back down the chain of command in order to get get started so I think organizations are flattening um, they're moving more laterally in terms of both promotion and responsibility. Um, and so the idea I have a budget and I don't need to impact, you know, on what you're doing because I can function, you know, with the resources that I'm able to need to complete uh, a job or, you know, achieve an outcome. What would the, what would you say, say the three key skills that people now need to develop to actually be able to adapt to the new, this new approach, the, the, the flattening of the structures and- And the, execute, get out and, of this whole execute, pattern yeah. and, and actually get things done. Mm. Yeah, look, I think the first thing is, is to both internally and externally communicate your purpose. I think above all, that's the, the most important piece because I think it allows you to establish you know, what's most important to you um, and thereby communicating that to the people that you work with. Um, again, allowing them to latch on to create a, a common purpose in which they can both work together. And so you don't need to get into the minutia of managing objects or things or processes. You actually allow them to lead a purpose, a common or shared purpose together. So that's the first thing. I think that's the most important. Um, the second, I think, is, is this idea of being able to cultivate an environment of trust where you're you're talking more about um, principles of engagement, principles of how we work together, principles of expectation, um, and trusting those people that you've hired or are in roles um, to do exactly that, to focus on those outcomes. So again, this notion of cultivating trust. And I think the most difficult piece, as we've just talked about, is, is letting go and allowing um, this notion of control to be flipped on its head. And letting go means allowing people to be the best at what they do. Um, in as much as, as a leader, you feel this level of importance and knowledge and capability um, when the best leaders that I've worked with have decided actually they're not good at this particular thing and they've identified those people who are and they let them get on with it. The worst thing you can do is try to control and in a way strain the best people from doing their best work. Um, so mm-hmm. that notion of letting go and, and letting control go, I think, are, are the the third of the three top things that I would encourage people to focus on. Well, we've seen a big theme, haven't we, Boo, in in these uh, conversations that we've had on the few where it seems to always end up going back to the baseline of purpose. And <laughs> everything, it's the, it's every, the one word that, the why. that like, always gets what, brought up. Get rid of the what or the how. Yeah. But why the heck are you doing it in the first place? I, did, I, I just ran a planning session this morning for a, a huge organization and the, the, the challenge for them to think in terms of purpose in a big organization that, well, we just do what we're told. Okay, but 
if you, but if you didn't exist, what would not happen then? Don't, don't think about what you do. Think about what wouldn't happen mm. if you're not here. If if a bomb went off in this room, what would what would not get done? And they then they're like, oh, this and this and this. It's like, okay. And do you think that would be bad for everyone? Oh, it'd be horrendous. And the whole organisation come to its knees. So if you think about it, your purpose is pretty important, right? What you do is actually critical. And they're like, yeah, it is. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, we yeah, absolutely. And then all of a sudden the room ignited and and the detail which is still important right you you need to do the detail your team does the detail not the leader and all of a sudden everyone just got excited you know because they connected with something that was here and 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 a little bit of soul as well Uh, and that's just that's great so and and it's something i really want to have a a chat to you now uh wesley because clearly you know people you know groups of people trying to work together at a strategic level at a granular level so tell us about you what was this where you thought you would be right now in life when you started thinking about wesley hey i need a job i need to put food on the table back when you're a teenager well to be honest yes because uh, at 15 i wanted to get a phd and the reason why wow. is i didn't know what it was i just knew it was the highest you could get um from an academic perspective and growing up on the south side of chicago you, you have a couple of different ways you can get out. You can get out by sports and entertainment, um, or you can get out with your head. And I figured, I mean, I was a decent ball player and I could do some things that folks couldn't do, but I knew that was going to have a limited uh, shelf life. And so I figured I could use my brain a lot longer. And so, like I said, I wanted to get a PhD when I was 15. I think what really changed it for me was this idea of wanting to be um, an expert in my field, but to leverage what I knew to help others, um, help themselves. And so that piece I figured out early on and I continue to do that. I mean, that's my purpose. It's combining all of these things as a musician from the South side of Chicago, an academic, a thought leader, a mentor, a coach, um, you know, an executive, uh, you know, an advisor to boards, all of that stuff. But I want to use that to help others help themselves. Um, and so it's that combination of being able to use all that to illustrate this big picture where people can see themselves and how they fit in, I think is the most important thing for me. But I, I actually and wanted you, did to you do always this a have long that, time ago. Did you have that sense of service as a, as a teenager that you're, you wanted to be an educator? Was there peop, Were there people around you? Was there something that happened? What was it, uh, apart from progressing uh, out of a particular social demographic, was there other motivators that made you choose brain? I mean, how did you even learn the concept of a PhD at 15? Were you inquisitively minded? Where did it wow. all sort of gel for you, staring at the ceiling in your bedroom one night? Yeah, no. So my mom was a, um, a school teacher, a grammar school teacher. My dad was a cop. Um, and so I got this learning bug from my mom and this kind of protective need from my dad. Um, but he was always a, he was also a jazz musician, which is why I studied music composition and orchestration at Columbia. So that allowed me to, to tap into that piece uh, after he died my senior year of high school. But I think it was, you know, early on, um, I think it was about eight or nine years old. Um, my parents came to me. I was actually playing the piano and they sat on either side of me uh, and they said, we want you to, to take a test. And I said, okay. And so I went and took this test at this very old school. Um, and you know, all, I think it was a couple of days. And then they came back to me sometime later and said, you're going to leave the public school and you're going to go to the university of Chicago laboratory school. And all of a sudden my friends went from being all black and in my neighborhood to white and Jewish and mixed and from other parts of the world, from Asia, from Brazil, and so my life literally changed in an instant. Um, and they were all way smarter than I was, um, which gave me this um, environment, not to compete, but I wanted to be like them. Mm. Um, you know, where clearly I, I, was, I was using my brain. I mean, I was getting A's in school, in public school, but I wasn't being challenged. At the University of Chicago, I was challenged. Um, you know, and people didn't even try to be smart, and they were smart. That wasn't me. I had to try. But that environment really inspired me and made me realize that it was more than just being an athlete. I think you can be an athlete and an entertainer and have some head. Um, But what I figured out, you know, again, in the early age, which is why by the time I was 15, I said, I want to get a PhD is because I realized that that was 
um, the way in which I could have long-term success um, and leverage what I knew to, again, help others. That's incredibly early, as I've seen, in, for someone to, I guess, uh, in, with working with you know, many, many thousands of business owners over the years and, and myself included, that a lot of times, particularly for us males, um, we'll go through a very ego-driven period first when it's very self-serving, it's very you know, do stupid stuff and all the rest of it, whatever people do. Yeah, academics and, doesn't fit Until we highly. actually realize that we're just being a bit of a moron and we need to pull our finger out and go, you know what? It's not actually all about me. The world doesn't Having have a, a cop in your me. household negates that. That helps. <laughs> yeah. So that, that's incredible. Again, that's the um, reason why Boo and I came together to do The Few is to, is the concept of The Few is that how do people become one of the few that's actually living yeah what's the trigger where are the where are the Mm. influences is it yeah that that old nature nature or nurture thing Uh, but so let's go back uh wesley uh because you touched on a couple of issues there uh in terms of uh you know color and creed uh and coming out of uh the south end of chicago Uh, well obviously it's very prolific now with with trumpism and we're seeing this galvanization into two camps where we're starting to see racism bu- bubble up. Uh, again, sometimes Sean and I get ourselves a little bit in the deep end with people uh, because we can't really speak from that perspective. But we'd we sure. we we just like to open that conversation. Now, you, you've had your own experiences with police before uh, that were, were problematic. Uh, no doubt your dad had a few stories as well as to as to what uh, happened. To, what's it like being uh, black in uh, the US of A and globally, and what are your thoughts on the Black Matters movement? So being black in America um, has everything to do with uh, where you are um, and how you're perceived. So um, if I had grown up in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where I was baptized, I would have had a very different life. Um, had I grown up in Southern California, I'd probably have a very different life as well. But the one thing that is constant, and my mom, when I was uh, finished with my first doctorate, and she said, you know, you, you may have a PhD, but you're still black. And she used a different word to describe that. And she was right in, in getting me to understand that even though you have education, you have experiences around the world, you're still black wherever you go. Um, you, can, you can be white or Jewish or Muslim or anything. And I think you can almost in many cases get away depending on your hue, how people receive you when they see you. Um, People have a distinct um, response when they see me, whether that's a woman pulling her purse closer to her in an elevator when I step on um, or someone walking on the other side of the street um, or being stopped, you know, driving a, a convertible, Um, you know, with an earring in my ear and a baseball cap on backwards. Um, Whatever people see is what they respond to. So um, realizing that and the work that I've done around the world, I've always had an understanding, a recognition of what that is for other people. Um, and, and, And often, you know, kind of I put it out there for people to, to recognize that I'm okay with you realizing that I'm an African-American. So I do everything from make a joke about it. I think I've done that already. Um, but the idea is that I want to make sure people are comfortable with me knowing that I'm black and you know, I'm black. And so we can move to something far more important so we can get that <laughs> out of the, the way. elephant in the room. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Which but is a conditioned, for- it's a conditioned uh, frame anyway. It's like, it's it just what, What's just so, you know, for me frustrating is the fact that it's purely just conditioning, just like any other conditioning or any judgment or any label of any race or creed or religious belief or whatever it is. And But how does it, like growing up, so when you were younger, when you started to observe that response, like actually really understand that, oh, that person's responding to me because I'm like, how did that make you feel? Um. I, I think I, I didn't understand it initially, um, you know, because growing up on the south side of Chicago, all I knew was black people, um, you know, bizarrely, our uh, pastor in our church was white, uh, Pastor Pakel. Um, and then subsequently, uh, the following pastor, Pastor Snee, was, was white. So I'd see white people, I'd interacted with white people. I didn't have a feeling about them one way or the other. Um, it wasn't until I got to the lab school. The University of Chicago Lab School and realized 
that this was different. You know, mm-hmm. people, now they didn't look at me as being an African-American. It wasn't until I came home and people teased me for going to this school, um, teased me for, um, you know, being the smart dude, you know, those types of things. So it was actually more my own community, um, you know, labeled me as, you know, somewhat of a sellout um, because mm-hmm. I had moved on to, to get an education. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was a combination of that and then having, you know, progressed academically um, and into the corporate world where I realized that, um, you know, this was not going to be easy. And I think what made it even more difficult, and I've seen this in Australia as well, where having an education, you know, with, with several um, uh, graduate degrees doesn't necessarily put me in good stead um, as it would in the U.S. You know, in the U.S., it's the way out. Um, education isn't actually looked upon that way in, in Australia. I think it's more, you know, it's good, it's cool, but what's more important in Australia is actually um, relationships um, and mateship um, and those types of things that um, an education doesn't necessarily provide a, an equal um, alternative um, in assessing people's worthiness um, for roles or friendship or otherwise. You mentioned before about coming home and being ostracized and teased and brought down. It's a very animalistic part of the, it's the, of the human genome, I guess. Uh, and it's something that many people who, who are the few that live their purpose, that, that live their destination and the lives they choose for themselves, it's it's a trait you almost need to become very comfortable with, isn't it? Mm, mm. And this, I mean, we call it tall poppy syndrome uh, here, yes, obviously indeed. in Australia, yeah. but yeah. I believe it exists in humanity everywhere. I think. Oh, everywhere- it's. I think for me, and, and you know, I lived in the, in the UK and London for five years, and in Edinburgh for a couple of years as well. But what's so interesting about it is, it's it's a gang mentality, you know, where we want everybody to be the same. You know, if you've got a a blue leather jacket, well, then I need to get a blue leather jacket as well. And so that was less about me being black and more about me doing something that they weren't doing for themselves. You know, they would have preferred to hang out and do whatever they were doing. And so it was only the extent to which I was doing something different than they were doing that made me an outcast. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, so when I'd go play basketball, which I literally would do every day, all, I want college boy, you know, I want, you know, uh, I want frat boy because I joined a, a fraternity. So it was all of these things that, you know, it was trying to make me feel small. But I mean, they knew me since, you know, the beginning of time. So they knew who I was. It was just a way of calling out that I'm different to them because my experiences um, were different than theirs. And you're right. That's that herd mentality of something different poses a potential threat. Correct. And, and yeah, we do see that a lot. So, so, uh, so translate that now, uh, Wesley, into – let's go back to our original conversation here because uh, you, you really are a scholar and a mentor in organizational uh, leadership and culture, uh, strategic HR, HR being a enabler for a business rather than mm-hmm. just be the check and balance and the thing you have to have because legislation yeah. says you have to have it. What are these, what are these human traits? What are the human traits – that aren't the few that that are self-limiting and the challenges that leaders have to overcome. And one of the things I see is this artificial harmony where we see leaders coming down to the level below and participating uh, at, they confuse collegiate in, in terms of, well, I've got to be collegiate. Therefore I can't be a leader. I'm a manager and I have to be the same as everyone else. What is it about our inherent humanness that is a weakness in a large organization when we look at it in terms of achieving goals and being successful? Like I think I mentioned it before, I think there's a fear um, in some circles that leaders believe they need to be something that they're not in order to be a good leader. And what about failing? What about failing as a leader in there? Well, look, I mean, you know, I think failure is probably the best thing that a leader um, can experience. In fact, the more the failure, the better. Um, You know, it's not how you fail. It's how you pick yourself up. Um, But I think what leaders tend to believe is that there there is a a script that I need to follow. I need to I need to go to the manager's uh, 
uh, happy hours so that I can feel like I'm hanging out with the boys or the girls, as opposed to saying, actually, I don't drink. Um, I don't like going out to clubs. Um, but Hey, let's, you know, go, go play whatever game in the park, or let's just, you know, uh, you know, go do a, a Bach on the park type of thing, whatever it may be. And I, and I guess this notion of being authentic is really important, um, to talking about who you are and, what's important to you back to the notion of purpose. So people can see who you are as opposed to this artificial um, alternative version of yourself that isn't you. And, you know, when push comes to shove or in the context of crisis, you know, you are who you are, you know, as as I say in the article that I wrote seven habits of leaders in crisis, you know, crisis doesn't, you know, turn you into something else. It just reveals who you are. Mm. And so, you know, given the choice of being who you are and being someone else, just be who you are. If, if you don't like going to clubs or happy hours or whatever, that's okay. That doesn't make you less of a leader. It just makes you an authentic person that believes what you believe and, and you get on with it. I think one of the good traits, you know, the strong traits that I've seen from leadership is the ability to say no rather than just saying yes. Because too often we say yes to things that, uh, you know, it's it's too oh, it's endemic. somebody yeah. else. The bigger the organisation, the more yes you see, and it just yeah. you just manage chaos. And and that same old excuse matrix comes out, which is well, I said yes, but due to circumstances beyond my control, is now no. When it was a a no in the in the first place, yeah, you know. And this we had this saying in the air force. I probably said it before. I can't. I never remember. No, got no memory. Yeah, credibility years to earn and only a few seconds to lose. And goes Absolutely. back to your crisis point there, uh, Wesley, in terms of. The minute the minute a leader lies or covers something up, everyone in the room sees it. Like it's, it, you cannot hide it. But for some reason, uh, middle managers probably, especially the, the career middle manager, I guess, uh, I, I think that's one of the biggest breakthroughs you can make as a leader is to admit your mistakes and admit your failures uh, and allow everyone around you to do the same. Absolutely. And in fact, you know, we won't get into political debates, but I think one of the things that has been really interesting uh, about the situation in the U.S. it's it's an issue where managing or leading by fear um, has really um, you know been under a microscope to the level that I've never seen before. I mean, everyone at some level um, doesn't fear leaders, but they respect leaders. You know, if you look at um, sports teams, you know, which I've played sports. The idea is that, you know, leadership is, is a matter of respect, not fear. I didn't, you know, as captain, you know, of, of the football team, I didn't, I wasn't feared. I was respected. Um, and, and so the idea of me, you know, making a call, um, you know, asking somebody to step back or asking someone to do more, they didn't do it because they feared me. They respected my opinion. Others backed me up. Um, and so it was a matter of not just me leading, but hopefully saying what others thought and, and I was their voice. And I think that's, that's what leadership is about. And so the idea of, you know, people, you know, demanding people to do certain things or, or whatever the case may be, I think it's, it's less about fear and more about respect. And again, I will say it once again, back to the notion of purpose, because if we're leading by purpose, my purpose becomes your purpose. We share our purpose, but we have to articulate that and have that communication between one another to know exactly what that is. And you'd be surprised because, you know, when I talk about purpose, I'm talking about a deep commitment that motivates my thinking, my decisioning, um, and what I do. And it permeates everything I do. Um, and so, you know, when we think about what a purpose is, um, you know, sometimes it's articulated, sometimes it's not. Um, but, you know, you can see somebody's purpose is, you know, winning at all costs. And so in a leadership position, you actually see people who literally will run over their grandmother's grave. Um, they will compete at everything that they do, um, but they're not doing it from a position of humility. They're doing it from a position of trying to win at all costs. And that's not what you want your leaders to do. That's not what you want their purposes to be about. And therefore you can make a decision to opt in or opt out of organizations that have individuals that lead with those types of purpose. I'll tell you what, 
talking about PhDs, how many academics are going to pick over Trump's presidency in terms of leadership style, in terms of influence? Uh, one of the real challenges with uh, kids and uh, being a leadership mentor and coach is trying to talk to positive leadership traits and characteristics whilst the leader of the free world is the complete opposite. What effect do you think this is going to have on society, Wes? Oh, look, I mean, clearly he will be studied by, you know, psychologists uh, and, and other uh, mind-bending people all over the world. But I, I, I think he has, you know, opened up a scab that, you know, has been sitting there just not being able to heal. So I don't think Trump um, has done anything that wasn't already there. He just made it okay to do it. Um, you know, back in the day, the Ku Klux Klan wore, you know, a, a white hood, a, a white cape, um, and would never reveal their identity. Well, now they just walk around in T-shirts and jeans and, and you know, spew nonsense. Um, I think not Trump himself, but what he has allowed people to feel comfortable doing has really changed the dynamics around race. Um, in the U.S., it's made it okay for somebody to walk up to me, literally spit in my face, and it happened when I was 15 years old. Um, you know, somebody uh, I was sitting on the bus stop with my then girlfriend, and you know, a, a, a pickup truck stopped at the stoplight, and you know, a guy was looking at me, had his arm out, and then as the light turned green, he spit at me, and and it hit me, and I remember, and you know, I ran track, so I was pretty quick, and I. <laughs> I think I scared them because I was able to catch up. I wasn't able to do anything once I got there. But Trump has made that okay. And that type of leadership makes those types of um, decisions about who they are, about their feelings, about other people, um, those types of things. He's made it okay. And I think that's problematic. So it's less about Trump and more about Trumpism. But he, but um, as a leader and, and as an individual – for one person to unlock million, hundreds of millions of, of attitudes. You see this throughout history in various uh, empires. Uh, very Typically, expansionist empires are run by psychopaths and megalomaniacs, right? Uh, so you, Narcissists as yeah, well. Yeah. So, so you see this. But what? as much as it's Trumpism, but at the end of the day, he, as one person, created it by being a leader, a figurehead, and espousing... Or, not probably espousing a view, but allowing a view, not not stamping that, it out, right? And I think that's the case. He 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 made it okay to to be who we already were. Like I said, I don't I don't think there's any more or less racism in the U.S. than there was prior to Trump. He just made it okay. I mean, in 2011, he said that Barack Obama wasn't born in the U.S. and and I, I would imagine people looked around and said. Wow, really? I guess he wasn't born in the U.S. Mm. And it just grew and it grew and it was okay to not only think that, which perhaps people did, but it was now okay to say that. It was okay to beat the drum about that. And so by the time that he ran for office and just before, I believe, he either took office or um, it, I think it was just before he took office in December of, of 2016, he actually said, okay, no, he wasn't born in Kenya. He's an American citizen. But he had said prior to that, you know, I sent my team down to Hawaii and they found all of this stuff about Obama. They didn't find anything again. So it was about, you know, right now, I think the biggest fear that Republicans have um, is, is not Trump, but it's his Twitter account, you know, with, you know, 88 million followers one tweet from the president of the United States could literally end someone's political career. Um, and so I think, again, it's back to fear. Um, people don't fear Barack Obama. They respect and admire Barack Obama. And that's a very different position of leadership, um, which is why wherever he goes, he is well-loved and respected and admired. Trump is feared and he's created a kind of furious populism, um, you know, where people have absolutely lost their minds. And I really would, I'm going to be interested to see what happens, you know, what role he plays going forward. 
um, in terms of whether he says he's going to run in 2024, thereby uh, effectively freezing the, the nomination process for everyone else. Um, you know, what role he takes in society, whether that's running a news agency or being a pundit on an existing news uh, program, it's going to be really interesting. But, but the idea is that Trumpism is around fear. Um, and, and for leaders, as, as you mentioned earlier, around our kids looking at leadership and what leadership should be about, um, I, I would suggest that that's not the type of leadership that I would espouse. Well, it's the most extreme version that I see of irresponsible leadership because as a leader, you need to control the narrative. Now, obviously, he's doing it. He's controlling the narrative, and I'm certain it's on purpose uh, for a particular way, but it's actually not in a positive way. And if we take that lesson and apply it to uh, organizations and and small businesses, um, the leadership style, as you say, it can't be fear-based. It's got to be one built on respect, which means that you have to be really, really careful with everything that you say. And one of my past mentors, you know, years ago, uh, taught me a little expression that he said, every conversation is a negotiation. Mm. And whenever you open your mouth, it's you're negotiating something, you're, you're having an impact, you're influencing somebody's decision. So your choice is you can either influence someone or you can manipulate somebody. Mm. It takes the same action. Right. It's the intent behind that action that, that delivers whether you get a positive response or a negative response. So, you know, that's really is an extreme example of, you know, one side. And it's like, if you take that lesson and effectively apply it to your business and reverse it, mm. then you're probably going to turn up as a pretty good leader in your organization. Yeah. The, the last thing I will say about Trump is whatever he's doing, he's very good at his job. Yeah. He's very Absolutely. good at it. I think Absolutely. social media though, I think he's, I think that, I think the world has moved to contain. I think, I would Im- imagine what would have happened if Twitter didn't tag every one of his posts saying that this is a disputed fact. This is not, you know, here's, here's a link to find out some real information about this. So I think that's also been some some positive changes there Absolutely. within the social uh, media space as well. I think so, uh, yeah. Which, which is, yeah, God, God forbid if that thing just kept running completely uh, unfettered. Uh, so we, you spoke about examples for kids. So, so when you were a kid, no doubt your father was a major role model for you, but who outside of your family were the, the key influences and why? Look, I'd probably say, you know, kind of on, based on what I read, um, you know, people like um, Malcolm X, um, Martin Luther King, um, John F. Kennedy, you know, so these are folks that I read about. Um, and was it because of what they did or because of their attachment to their purpose? I mean, I, I couldn't have described or knew what purpose was when I was that young, but I, you know, in understanding, you know, based on what I read, the impact that they had on people's lives and again, how people honored and respected um, and admired their lives, um, you know, that, that really kind of channeled my energies, you know, towards that type of thinking that type of involvement in the community, that type of, um, you know, wanting to be something more than just a kid that, you know, played basketball or baseball or football and instead wanted, you know, so, you know, look, I, when I was eight years old, I, you know, I became a, a Cub Scout and, and that was because I wanted to do something more, um, you know, became a, a, a Boy Scout and went through that whole process. Um, you know, volunteers, um, for literacy, um, uh, volunteers of America. So I did all of these things, um, not because I wanted to be better or more than anyone else. I just wanted to do something, um, that allowed me to share whatever gifts that I had with other people. Um, and so that, that kind of became what I would do, but I wouldn't necessarily talk about it. It was just those things that I did that, you know, effectively went under the radar that probably helped to form, you know, who I became over time. Would you say it's also because, you know, the no way of saying the purpose piece is that, that those people that inspired you actually stood for something. It was very clear what they stood for. Yeah. But, and to be honest, I think, you know, I knew what, um, you know, uh, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X and John F. Kennedy stood for, you know, again, you know, trying to decipher what that meant at a young age was probably, um, I was too, literally too immature to understand what all of those things meant, but there was something in there that I could tell was, was big. 
um, and that was really important um, and that was worthy of further exploration. Um, and so, you know, it, it was always, you know, about trying to find ways to help other people. Um, and, and I think, you know, it, one of the things that we did in, in um, again, early on, I was uh, 17 years old when I pledged my fraternity, but I think, you know, one of the things that we were doing was, you know, toys for tots, um, um, taking people to the polls, to older people to the polls to vote, you know, things that were about, you know, service and, and the fraternity is actually around service, but it was, it was doing those types of things that gave me so much joy and um, fulfillment. Um, you know, it was a different fulfillment, you know, than, than, you know, making a touchdown or, you know, shooting a, you know, a, a basket to, to end the game. But, but, you know, that's why I've talked about this combination of things that I've done and using that combination to, again, paint a picture for other people um, to help them help themselves and, and effectively using my voice as their voice. So I do a lot of listening to people and channel that back through my experiences to, to help them think through their stuff, using me as a sounding board with experience to say, well, well, this is what we did, you know, in South Africa, or this is what we did in Hong Kong. So people can kind of go, oh, okay, I get it. Right. Mm -hmm. So I'm taking what they give me and feeding it back in their voice. And so I think, you know, again, over time, all of these experiences, and again, far more failures than success have really helped me to to understand and relate to people. I always say, I want to talk to people where they are, you know, the, you know, forget school and all this other, I want to talk to people where they are. I want to reach them where they are. And that's the most important connection I can make. And I think based on what you've been saying to us, obviously with your getting clear on your, your purpose on, you know, on probably the, the sense of self at a, at a fairly young age compared to a lot of people, what would you say to somebody who's still, scratching their head and trying to find what what their purpose is where does their purpose lie because that's a big issue some people really struggle with, with a, lot, a lot of people yeah yeah look look i think people probably have their purpose they just haven't articulated it to themselves yet um if you think about you know if you ask somebody you know what do they like doing what makes them happiest what makes them most fulfilled it may not be the thing but it's the process around the thing, mm. you know? So it, it um, you know, I write music, although I've, I've been very slack in doing that, but that makes me incredibly happy. Now, what makes me happy is, is the end product, but writing the music is the most fulfilling thing I, I've ever done other than, you know, writing my books or articles, you know, I get short of fulfillment in that, but it's the process of thinking and, and, and exploring ideas and being able to, to, to look at a way in which to, to say something that is, is, is interesting, um, or, or noteworthy. Um, so, so it's, it's what it's finding out where that fulfillment comes from and then kind of branching out and finding out well, what surrounds that thing. Um, what surrounds, you know, what do you, so you, you like going to see music. You like going to see live concerts. Well, what's it about that? Does it, what does it make you feel? So, so I think when people are able to almost um, uncouple all of those things, they probably will be able to understand and distill what their purpose is from that. And the fear, um, the, the fear barrier that says, I love this, but I could never do it. Absolutely. But, but, and they can though. I mean, I, you know, do you want to be a, a AFL footballer, you know, who plays for the Tigers, although the Western Bulldogs is a better club. Um, do you want to do that? And, and what's the likelihood of that happening? You may not at, you know, 45 become, you know, a footballer for the Western Bulldogs, but, but could you be a supporter? Could you coach kids um, and, and find fulfillment through that? Could you be a part of the club? Could you be a part of, you know, the VFL club. I mean, there are ways in which that you can still be fulfilled when you distill, you know, this notion of, I want to be a Western uh, Bulldogs player to what is it that I like about being, you know, involved in football? Is it the camaraderie, the mateship from the players? 
you know, is the training, what is it? It's, and, and it's an ethos can... of a gang. It's like you said, right, the AFL player piece is a bit, and I remember when I uh, first started doing my high-performance coaching, I thought, man, wouldn't it be really cool to do a, a professional sports team? And at the time, you think, ne- never going to happen. But yeah, you're right. You, you, you do something, write a book, send it in, have a chat, and, and then you're in there doing it. And you're like, I cannot believe I am doing the thing that five years ago I said, wouldn't it be cool if I was doing what I'm doing right now? And life can be so full of those moments if you commit to that process. I think that's right. And in fact, to your point, I think it's, it's about finding what it is in there, you know, again, cause it's not necessarily being a top eight. Yeah, you're never going to play on the field, but you can be Correct. in the community in a meaningful way. And exactly. also within those communities, you see guys who pick up the, the training mitts and prepare the, the field before and after who carry the water. They're all part of, the team and in their own way a vital element of it and it's that's the bit it's being part of that that community that is the that is the key i think i think it's a shallow uh, ambition to want to be uh, a great individual uh, to to do things uh, in a great way and i think great individuals implicitly understand teamwork and implicitly understand the interconnectedness of community uh, individually successful people all by themselves you know they're shooting stars and they're living in Bolivia somewhere you know in fear of their lives because everyone they stepped on to get there so but no no individual has been a leader and and that's the key you know so you're absolutely right if, if I'm the best player in whatever sport in whatever country I alone because I'm the best I'm not a leader right leading takes other people that support me and I support them and so this idea of you know what does it mean to be a leader? It's actually realizing, you know, this idea of shared success. You know, I can't do it without them, you know, because they're the experts at what they do. I may be more of the facilitator. I often talk about, you know, my life in music being able to influence my life as a consultant because I look at organizations, you know, as, as a, a, a score sheet. You know, I see all of the people down the left-hand side and I see each measure across the top of what people are doing how they're interacting, how they're resting or playing or whatever they're doing. And my role is to facilitate that music, to direct that music. Um, and to me, that's what leading in that context means. Um, so, so yeah, I think people have to realize that, that leading is definitely an art, um, but it's better to step back and, and allow people to be the best that they can be and help to facilitate and support that versus the one that has to step forward. I think for me in terms of, you know, learning from my own mistakes, it's learning that being the best leader isn't necessarily being the first through the door. Um, It's actually in many cases, probably many more cases, being the person that either follows everyone else or doesn't go through the door at all. I'm okay standing back and and doing my thing on the side where it's more important for you to, to walk through those doors on your own. And I think as the as the leader too, one thing that I've observed is that that leadership is can be any style, it can be the individual's got to be the individual's own style of of approaching leadership because the real dominant, strong, you know, alpha type leaders. Yeah, there are some people like that, but if you're not that and you try and be that, people are going to see through it straight away. You've got you're to show up as self. Yeah. you might be really quiet and 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 laid back and and but you can still have the same impact as a That's leader. It's the authentic piece. It's being yeah. authentic. It's it's recognizing who you are and what you do best um, and being comfortable in your own shoes. And, and again, I think, you know, I've been around a number of leaders who, you know, because they're a woman or because they're a big person, they feel the need to have an outsized personality. And it, it actually isn't required. I'd much rather you be, you know, a feminine uh, leader and, and that's okay. Or you can be a quiet, big, you know, six, five dude. You don't have to be, a big personality doesn't have to come out of someone who's actually big and in that's size. probably this whole celebrity cult and celebration of uh of of being this individual who's always in your face uh it's yeah it's, it's painful so we do ask uh, our guests a question uh, wesley and based on what you've said in the podcast uh you sound like you had your um, shit in a sock pretty early on anyway but if you were if you had the chance to to tell your 15 year old self uh, one thing uh, to help you through those times that were really tough or dark uh, the, the the advice that would help you get from 15 to where you are now a little bit more seamlessly what would that sage advice be um, 
do what you feel. I mean, I, if I struggle with it now and sometimes I have to pull myself up. Well, my first love has always been music and I, I have somehow figured that I can't do anything else with music in the background. This is, you'll get the connection hopefully. So I turn off the music when I'm writing, when I'm thinking, because I tend to focus on the music when it's playing. But at the end of the day, let the music play. Do what you feel, do what you love. Um, and you'll be okay. You'll figure out, your brain will figure out how to focus on this music that you love in the background and this other thing that you're doing at the same time, right? So you got to figure out how to, as you said, kind of integrate all of these things at once, not the balance, but the integration of what you love and what you do becoming the same thing, integrating those things together. Now, that's awesome. Uh, that is sage advice, not only for your 15-year-old self, uh, but to everyone here listening to the podcast. Uh, Wesley, thanks so much for sharing those insights. And, uh, you know, it's really lovely having the opportunity to talk to someone uh, who has such breadth of experience and has the, the ability to have a look at things from a practical as well as an academic viewpoint. It's a rare trait, I think, the, to be able to look at, at things on both sides uh, of that coin. Uh, you have uh, written a book. Uh, if do you want to just fill us in a little bit about the motivation and, and the objective of, of, bring, of, of writing that book and what people can really glean from it? Yeah, so, so the book is uh, Strategy, People, and Performance. And it literally is about this alignment between a business strategy and people strategy and how that lends itself to greater performance. And again, it, it came out of this idea that, you know, I wonder what would happen if organizations actually put together or lined up in a straight line their business strategy and their people strategy, because a lot of times those two have nothing to do with each other or worse, they may have a business strategy, but they don't have a people strategy. And so I did some research with 75 different companies and focused on this idea of let's understand what the business strategy is, what the people strategy is and see to what degree they are aligned. And as I thought those companies in which they were aligned performed better um, and those companies that in which they weren't aligned didn't perform uh, nearly as well. And I think what was so interesting is that you could have this great business strategy and a great people strategy, but if they're not aligned, you don't perform as if those two things are great. You can literally have a poor business strategy and a poor people strategy, but to the extent that they are aligned, it performs better than those companies that have, again, those two things that are big, but unaligned. So anyway, it was um, an incredible amount of um, data. So I've used all of these crazy statistical methodologies. Oh, I love um, statistics. Statistics are so yeah, good. Well, me too, yeah. <laughs> probably too much. Um, but, but I was able to, to have some really significant um, uh, findings that uh, I still use to this day. That's awesome. Uh, if you're looking for a good read and you are a, a leader and you are particularly of a, of a complex organization, uh, reach out uh, onto amazon.com, usually the best place to buy anything <laughs> made of paper. Uh, it's called Strategy, People and Performance. Uh, the author is Wesley Plain McClendon. Uh, Wesley, thanks so much. You're also a, a speaker on the circuit uh, internationally uh, here in Australia. If you're looking for Wesley, reach out to our partners at icmi.com.au. Uh, thanks, Sean. You got anything to add, mate? Uh, what a fantastic uh, conversation. Really appreciate you taking the time, Wesley. And, uh, you know, I always learn something new whenever we have a, another guest on, a new perspective, a new way of, you know, describing something or so, yeah, really, really enjoyed the uh, conversation today. So thank you. I really appreciate the time. And uh, you probably can't see, but I'm blushing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can see it. I can see it. Oh, fair enough. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> thanks, Wesley. Thanks, Sean. Thanks, and uh, thanks, thanks to you, our uh, listeners. If you have any questions, uh, any recommendations or any clarification, uh, please reach out to uh, Sean and myself or Wesley uh, directly. And that wraps up another episode of The Few. Thank you to our partners, Afterburner, for team building, development, and alignment. We understand now how important it is to have the right people around you. Get them on board with where you want to go. Momentum Media, the largest industry publisher in the country, connecting your business to the Australian community. 
ICMI, Australia's premier speaker bureau, representing the few that do fulfill their life's purpose. And finally, Sean's Inner Circle, the business coaching organization for small and medium enterprises looking to make that next step. Thanks again for listening in and downloading today. Please leave a review on whatever platform you are currently listening to this podcast and reach out to our partners who can help you make the transition to the few. Uh, on that note, that's it for another few podcast. I look forward to you listening to the show next time. This has been the Few Podcast with Boo and Sean. If you've got value from this episode and you would like to support us, please share it with your friends. If you're posting this on social media, use the hashtag the few so we can see who's listening. The Few Podcast is recorded at Momentum Media in Sydney, Australia. To listen to more episodes, visit us at fewpodcast.com and make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode. Dream big, keep pushing, and one day you can become one of the few. We'll see you next week.